great to see all of you here this morning. I hope that you've had a wonderful week. I don't know if you've noticed, well actually I think it's very easy to notice, we live in a time of uncertainty. Uh, that's just the nature of the era that we live in. Uh, some of the uh, uh, uncertainty affects us in more dramatic ways than other, others do. For example, um, it's that time of year where we're all tracking hurricanes and tropical storms, see which way they're headed. We even have a, uh, a cone of uncertainty that basically says somewhere in here, and then sometimes it goes somewhere else, you know, so we're just... Time of uncertainty, the news cycle changes about every other hour, whether it's about local or global or national news. Uh, you follow politics and the polls from one poll to the next. There's somebody else leading the pack. And with regards to the stock market, the only thing that might be said on a general basis is that what we can be certain of is that there will be volatility. That's just what's happening in our world. And so I think that it can be helpful when we come to moments like this to ask ourselves, what am I totally certain of? Is there anything I'm just absolutely can say with confidence? And that might be something you practice this week of what are you certain of? I wrote down a few things that I'm certain of that I thought I'd share with you. Number one, the first thing that I'm totally certain of is that Major League Baseball season is way too long. It just goes on forever. You know, we still got one more week. Some say, no, it's not. Well, the Braves clinched the National League East, so that's, that's a good thing. So maybe it can go on for a little longer. Um, second thing, absolutely certain, that the weather we are experiencing right now is fake fall. Don't fall for it. This is Columbia. Summer's always right around the corner in Columbia. Third thing I'm certain of, once again, I'm going to lose in my fantasy football league. I don't have a chance. Drew Brees is my quarterback. He's out. Two more in my top-tier players. They're not playing for weeks, so I'm going to lose. There's always next year. I hear that a lot. There's always next year. Fourth thing, finally, I'm certain it's never too early to start listening to Christmas music. So those are the things that I'm certain of. Benjamin Franklin famously wrote in a letter in 1789, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. And of course, our government continues to come up with new ways to tax, so that will be certain until time itself ends. Today, I want to talk about certainty in spiritual terms. That's where I want to go. I want to ask the question, how can we know with certainty that I can have eternal life? How can I know that with certainty? I began a series last week called This Is My Story where we're going through the scriptures and we're looking at people who have encounters with the living God and we're looking at what happens when God gets hold of a life. Well, last week we began by looking at the demoniac who lived on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And after he encountered Jesus, we said that his story could be Jesus calmed the storm inside me. He was delivered and then he was deployed. Well, this week, we're going to look at a person that is the polar opposite of the demoniac uh, in Gadarene or Gesserine. He was part of the ruling class, and his approach to God was legalism. He was an elite member of society. He was not an outcast like the demoniac. But he thought the only way he could be certain about his standing way, uh, with God was to earn favor. He reminds me of a farmer that I heard about. Uh, this farmer had the most pristine land you can imagine. 
His farm would have been the ideal setting for this uh, Pinterest obsession with farmhouse living that we see today. Beautifully painted white farmhouse set among rolling pastures, fresh coat of paint on the house, fresh coat of red paint on the barn that just created this idyllic backdrop. You could tell he took pride in his land and his facilities. He just worked very hard to keep everything spit spot. If you went to see where his corn was to grow, the, the, the rows were just straight as an arrow. The fields where the wheat was to be planted was just, the soil was perfectly cultivated. He carefully spaced out uh, the different sections for the produce he was to grow. He had the land properly turned, properly irrigated. He worked hard from sun up to sundown. He read all about best practices when it came to farming. He made sure that the, the land laid fallow for the, just the perfect amount of time. He kept his John Deere tractor in perfect running order. He even dressed the part. Incredible overalls. That beautiful straw hat, piece of straw out of his mouth. Walked outside every day and sweated with his pitchfork and tools in hand. But there was something missing for this farmer. He was an expert on the farmer's part in farming. But he missed the importance of the seed. No matter how well this man worked the fields... There was no seed in the ground to push up new growth. Well, just like this farmer, the man who is about to meet Jesus is a legalist who prepared the land, prepared the field, but forgot about the seed. So you look with me this morning at the most famous chapter in all of John's gospel, perhaps the entirety of scripture. It's John chapter 3 where we're going to see where Jesus experiences for the first time Nick at night. He meets Nicodemus at night. So let me read to you John 3. I'm going to read the first two verses to begin with. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. John is the only biblical writer who mentions this man, Nicodemus. He's described as a Pharisee, as a ruler of the Jews. So he's Jewish, he's a man, he's a member of the leading class of society. He is a theological insider. As a Pharisee, we would say that he could probably brag on his own righteous deeds. He was known for his skill at teaching. He's called a rabbi. And to be a ruler of the Jews indicated he was a member of the Sanhedrin. This is the, um, uh, akin to the uh, chief judicial body for the nation of Israel. He had a responsibility to maintain the status quo, especially because of Roman rule over Israel. In short, you could say that Nicodemus is a well-connected figure. He had a pretty high profile in the world where Jesus was living. So John tells us that Nicodemus comes to Jesus one night. Now some have speculated that he came at night to be able to be under the cover of dark because he was a religious insider, didn't want people to see him. Other people say that he came at night because he wanted to have uninterrupted time with Jesus. So Jesus is busy during the day in ministry. He goes to him at night where he gets some free time with him. Either way... Uh, John here is drawing a parallel for us that Nicodemus came at night but also is addressing his spiritual condition. Nicodemus lived in the dark. 
and he is now walking into the light of Jesus. And I think it's worth pointing out this morning that Nicodemus is a seeker. His curiosity has been piqued. He sought out answers. What about you? Does Jesus pique your interest? Does he make you want to seek out truth, to ask questions, to dig deeper? I don't assume that everyone that's here in this room this morning or joining us online or by television has settled once and for all what you believe about Jesus. I imagine that you have, even this morning, some questions about who he is. You maybe heard about him, heard about him all of your life, but have you really wrestled with the question, the essential question is, of who do you say that Jesus is? It seems that this is the very idea that Nicodemus is wrestling with when he comes to meet Jesus. He heard about Jesus, he was intrigued by the things he had heard, and the things that have been said about him. So he seeks him out. And he addresses Jesus in a very respectful way. He calls him rabbi. Now Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a theological insider. Jesus is a carpenter. So it wasn't likely that that was handed out. That theological elites did not refer to mere carpenters as rabbis on a regular basis. But his comment, comment to Jesus essentially acknowledges that he believes Jesus must be from God because of the incredible insight he has, but not only that, the miraculous wonders he's performing. He says these things are indicative of divine power. I would say that what Nicodemus says is reflective of what many people living around us today, perhaps most, would express. Most people growing up around here have heard of Jesus, they know a good bit about him, and based on research, I would say that they have a good uh, kind of perception of him. They have a positive perception of Jesus. They think he was an important teacher of his day, and his insights kind of reach into and ring, still ring true today. They believe he had a life that uh, would have been one worth emulating, because he lived in an honorable way. He stood out from the rest of the pack. But when you start considering the miracles... And when you look at this idea of resurrection, some of these people step back and they say, I'm not sure about that. That may be more legend than truth. When Nicodemus is saying to the Lord, Jesus, I've been watching. I've heard the rumors about you. You're a good teacher. You present incredible insights from God. And it's clear you're a force for good. He doesn't say anything about him being divine. He doesn't say anything about him being the son of God, but he says, I can tell there is divine inspiration there. You are a force for good. You, God has sent you. And the recorded conversation is real interesting, if you just pay attention to group dynamics, because it seems that Jesus evidently is not interested in small talk. He just cuts straight to the chase. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he doesn't really even respond to Nicodemus's comment. He just cuts straight to the chase. It's as if he knew what Nicodemus was already thinking. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? He immediately responds. And the opening comment of truly, truly is essentially an invitation to lean in because I'm about to say something pretty incredible here. And then he follows up with this enigmatic comment. He says, unless one is born again, now that phrase is used a lot in our culture, but this is a brand new idea. So he says, unless one is born again, 
He actually uses a Greek word here, or it's recorded, the Greek word that John records for us is, he says, unless one is born anothen, that's the word. Unless one is born anothen, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, you've already heard how most translations take this word, anothen, they translate it as again, unless one is born again. But this Greek word actually carries a few different meanings. You know, we have words like that today. Something you say, you have to have context to know what the person is saying. I may have shared this with you before, but I, I'm from East Tennessee originally. My roots go really deep in Appalachia. So when I'm around family, I notice they say certain words, and if you're not paying to context, uh, paid attention to context, you'll miss it. Like my dad. My, my dad has seven different meanings for the word far. He says if something's not near, then it's far. He also counts one, two, three, far. <laughs> when it gets cold outside, he says, let's go outside and build us a campfire. And then whenever somebody does something that's not kind, he says, well, that ain't far. About this time of year, he wants cotton candy, candy, uh, candy apples, so he goes to the state far. And then it's all kinds of different meanings for this one word, far. So you've got to pay attention. What, what, what do you mean? Say it one more time for me so I get what you're saying here. Well, anothen does not have seven different meanings, but it does have three. It can mean, again, as we've already heard, less often it can be translated as from the beginning. That doesn't make sense maybe in this context. And it can also mean from above. Nicodemus understands Jesus to be saying, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But I think that perhaps what Jesus is saying here, implying is, unless one is born from above. Look at how Nicodemus responds to him. Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? So that's the way he took it. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed at what I said, said to you, you must be born again. So Nicodemus is having his mind stretched in really new and incredible ways here through this conversation with Jesus. He understood the importance of birth in Judaism because he prided himself in being thoroughly Jewish. He came through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's really important to his belief system. But Jesus is saying, that's not enough. That which is born of flesh, he writes, is flesh. Human life comes from parents. Human life comes from human parents, but Jesus is speaking of spiritual life, which requires spiritual birth. So, Nicodemus, you must be born again, or perhaps better understood, Nicodemus, you must be born from above. Now, Nicodemus could be presenting a couple of different, you know, postures here. He could be being reflective and just saying, well, you know, can human nature really be reset like that? Is that I mean, how can we go through that process? Or he might be being cynical at this moment. You're mean to tell me I have to enter into my mother's womb again? Jesus, that makes no sense. Of course he knew that, but he's confused. Jesus acknowledges that there's a whole mystery surrounding this idea of being born again because he says it's an act of the Spirit. And then he alludes to the wind. He says it in the next verse. He says, you know, we can see the effects of the wind. 
We can hear it blowing, but we don't know where it comes from and we don't know where it's going. The Spirit, in the same way, works outside of physical laws. We simply see the effects of the Spirit. Nicodemus came to Jesus because he saw the Spirit's at work over here. So we see the effect of the, G, of the Spirit at work, but we can't always explain what he's doing or why he's acting. Well, Nicodemus is an honest seeker here. He's not come after Jesus in order to challenge his credentials. He's not trying to catch him on some theological point. He has genuine questions for Jesus, but he's baffled. He says in verse 9, how can these things be? This, this, this makes no sense. And I'm a, I'm a learned guy. I'm a theological insider. But what do you mean here? Nicodemus really wants to see the kingdom of God. He has committed his life to a very strict way of living in order to inherit this kingdom of God. He studied these things. And now this man with some incredible insights and these incredible wonders that are clearly from God is speaking of a brand new idea, a spiritual rebirth, a birth from above. It seems so mysterious, but just because it's mysterious doesn't mean it's not true. So Jesus illustrates in a way that Nicodemus might be able to understand. He points back to a moment in Israel's history that Nicodemus would have been familiar with. It's recorded in Numbers 21. This is the period of time whenever Moses has led the Egyptian children, I mean the Jewish children, the Hebrew children, out of Egypt where they were enslaved, taking them to the promised land. But as you'll recall, they wandered in the wilderness for a lot of time. And while they were there, they grumbled they grumped, they whined, why is this happening to us? They sometimes cursed the day that they left Egypt. They blamed so much on God. Well, God got fed up, and so he would judge them for this attitude and these actions of theirs. And Numbers 21 describes a time whenever God judged them by sending these fiery serpents among the people. They were loaded with venom because people were dying there among the, the Hebrew children. Well, Moses is compelled to seek forgiveness from God and says, please intervene. We're so sorry. And offers, you know, confession. And the Lord acts with kindness. And he told Moses to forge a bronze serpent, to attach it to a tall pole and to raise it up over the camp. In Numbers 21.9, it says, And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Well, Nicodemus knew about this mysterious thing, but he believed it. He believed it to be true. So Jesus refers to it in his conversation with Nicodemus. Look at verse 14 in John 3. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes uh, will in him have eternal life. This meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus is more than an encounter between two religious figures. This is a collision between two competing philosophies, two opposing views on salvation. Nicodemus operated off of the philosophy that salvation was up to him. If he wanted to be saved, as we sang today, then he better get to work. That the way to God's kingdom was to earn it. But the message that Jesus, who's come from God, is announcing to Nicodemus in every one sense is that eternal life does not come by works, but by belief. 
So Jesus is shattering the idea here that the way to God is by being good. In fact, the key principle from this whole passage is being good will never be good enough. Being good will never be good enough when we're speaking about spiritual interaction with the Lord. Nicodemus believed what many people believe today, even if they don't say they believe it. In fact, some of you may believe it deep down. That people do the work of salvation. Jesus says, no, God does the work of salvation. Nicodemus lived his life in order to earn God's favor, but Jesus has come into the world so that man's job is simply to accept God's favor by believing in the Son of God. Most people live as if there is some great cosmic scale out there that at the end of our life will just kind of weigh out the good from the bad. And it analyzes each person. And there are some people in this world that do really bad things. And then there are some people in the world who do medium bad things. And then there's me. I do itty-bitty bad things. I don't know about you, but I, just little. Just things that don't really matter in the scheme of things. I do a lot of really good things that will outweigh those tiny little bad things that really aren't that big of a deal. They're just not that important. Because very few people will admit that they've done or they are bad. If we're bad, it's only barely bad. But Jesus speaks to Nicodemus's worldview to explain that the days of a scale to weigh who is good enough to make it in is over. Being good enough has never been and never will have influence over who inherits eternal life with God. Nicodemus said he believed Jesus had, become, had come on behalf of God. And so Jesus said, well, if you believe that, then listen, listen up here. And he explains to him, you can't get to heaven just by being good enough, by all your religious involvement, by attending those Sanhedrin meetings, by participating in all the different feasts and all the different customs. Instead, he says, you place your faith in something totally different, the Son of Man. Well, to make sure we didn't miss it, John, the beloved disciple of the Lord Jesus, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, who pens this book, writes down for us his comments on what the Lord is saying here. And he provides three succinct statements, the first of which is the most famous verse in all of Scripture. It's the most memorized, the most quoted. People who know nothing about the Bible possibly know this one verse, at least the reference, John 3.16. And then he makes two other comments after that. So let's look at it, beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So in verse 16, we get one of the, if not the most succinct statements of the gospel that we believe. And the implications are incredible. He says, for God so loved the world. Well, since the beginning of time, most people imagine a God who does not love, but a God who is angry. A God who's looking to crush. A God who is out to get people who do the wrong things. But and if, in fact, God does love, he surely doesn't love the whole world, right? I mean, he, 
only loves just us, you know, our little corner of the world, not everybody. But the scriptures here say, for God so loved the world. And he demonstrates his love for the world by doing what every person who's ever loved before does, he gives. He didn't just look to receive, he gave. And in this case, he gave his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a costly gift because Jesus is his only begotten son. And Jesus was not sent into the world to crush the world or to destroy the world or to judge the world. It says he was given to the world so that those who would believe in him would not face an eternal death, but would receive eternal life. And the recipient of this gift of eternal life is whoever will believe, whoever. That's what it says. There's two actors in the verse. There's God and there's whoever. And Jesus is the mediator. So God and whoever. Sometimes we neglect that balance there. Some people will downplay the whoever part. Other times we downplay the God part. But the verse says, and I think it's important for us, for God loved, he gave, so that whoever believes will have eternal life. Nicodemus believed in a God who judged. And a man who earned his way to God. But the gospel says God loves and gives. And man responds to that. Verse 17 gives us the purpose statement for Jesus' mission. He was not sent to judge the world, is what the verse says. God is not some self-centered, angry God who looks to crush those who sin. He is a loving God who gives his own son that the world, the whole world might be saved, whoever believes. So here's the thing, though. Jesus didn't just talk God into this. He didn't just say, hey, God, let's put our best foot forward here and make, you know, make people get a good idea of what you're like. Jesus came as the fullness of God. So if we've seen Jesus, then we understand God and his love and his sacrifice, his giving is extravagant. Now verse 18 gives us a reality check here. It's the, it's the dark side of the gospel. Because it says there is judgment, but not for the one who believes. Instead, John says, the one who does not believe has been judged already. So it's not that judgment is coming. It's that judgment has already taken place. For those who do not believe in Jesus as the only Son of God, there is this judgment that demands you cover for your sins then. Because if you're not going to believe Him to take care of your sins, then you're going to have to take care of yourself. So pay up. And the clear message that Nicodemus receives, and for everyone who's heard this message since that night when Nicodemus met with Jesus, is that being good is not good enough. I think we can imagine that this was a difficult thing for Nicodemus to understand. His whole worldview has been shattered through this conversation. His life was committed to the philosophy that you've got to clean yourself up if you want to come before the Lord. And he's not the only one who believed that. There are plenty of people who live according to legalism. But the problem is legalism will not cover for your sins. Legalism is a hopeless search for innocence. And we cannot clear our name. We cannot achieve innocence. We cannot live a perfect life that God demands. Even on our best day, in our best moment, we're still, uh, still in that moment, we have been, um, we're at fault. Because sin is not just those wicked, evil, violent deeds we do. Jesus says they're also our thoughts that we should not dwell on. They're the attitudes and motives of our hearts. 
There are those things that compel us to do things or to say things that maybe make us look good, but it's really all about us. In his great letter to the church at Rome, Paul addresses this philosophy of legalism. And he quotes the psalmist in Romans 3, verse 10. He says, there's none righteous, not even one. And he goes on to put it in his own words in verse 20. Romans 3, 20 says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. In other words, being good is not good enough. No one can live up to the standard. Why? Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is unscathed. No one is innocent before a holy God. So if sin is the problem, Jesus is the solution. Just like Moses lifted up that bronze serpent in the wilderness to provide healing, God has lifted Jesus. We don't raise up the Son of Man. God does that. We just respond. We place our faith in Him. If you are to receive what you deserve for your life, then the scriptures say we deserve punishment. We deserve death, to be separated from God for eternity. But Jesus took your place on the cross. The death you deserved, he took. He absorbed all the wrath of God so that you could receive forgiveness. All you need to do is believe. Believe that you are a sinner who doesn't just need to be a better person. You are dead in your sins and you need to be made alive and only Jesus can do that. See, people don't go to heaven and receive eternal life because they're good. They go to heaven because they are forgiven. So how did things pan out for Nicodemus? Well, we don't know all the details, but we know that in some way he responded to the message that Jesus spoke to him. He not only heard, he also believed. One day Nicodemus found himself at the meeting for the ruling Jews when there are these concerns about Jesus and his ministry. It stirred up all kinds of strife to the point that the temple police want to arrest him. They come to meet with the Sanhedrin and Nicodemus speaks up. And he says, listen, we, we, we don't arrest people before they're judged properly. So we're not going to do that. And the people scatter and Jesus continues his ministry. Then came the fated day when Jesus was put to death. And Nicodemus pops up one more time after Jesus is, has died on the cross. In John 19 verse 39 it says, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Nicodemus, who first came to Jesus by night, now in the light of day, participates in burying the body of Jesus. He lived like a farmer who did all the work but forgot about planting the seed. Now he buries Jesus' body in the ground, which will come bursting through to give eternal life for everyone who believes. So this morning, perhaps like Nicodemus, you have questions. Perhaps you need to respond to the gospel message. Or perhaps you've already done that, but you've been living as if you earned your way to God. Today, the message for you is to respond. It's respond just like Nicodemus. Everybody has a story. Nicodemus met Jesus and was set free from legalism. He was born again, born from above. What's your story? Our Father and God, we thank you so much for this recorded word that's truth that sets us free too. 
God, I pray for each person here that today they'd respond. For those who are trying to earn their way to you, God, they would hear the message that good people don't go. It's forgiven people. Father, may your spirit move mightily today in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God's speaking to you this morning. Perhaps it's about responding to the gospel message. You've been working so hard. And today you just need to believe. Maybe it's about joining the church or some other need. We're going to have a time of invitation. Encourage you to respond. So just as the Lord's working in your heart, you respond. The choir's going to sing. I'm going to invite you to stand. As they sing, you respond. <laughs>